So my name is Matthew Ayers. I've been with New Life Church since 2006. I came here with the Air Force. The Air Force brought me back to Colorado Springs. I'd always wanted to come back here. And uh, since I went to undergrad here in the 90s. So I love this city. It's been a great part of my life um, and work. And so in 2006, when I came back here, uh, I had my dream job with the Air Force. And was really excited to come back here and teach. And then gave it all up a year later, just so I could come work for a little church called New Life. And uh, it's been a huge blessing. So after just a couple years helping a buddy set up the missions department, um, our senior pastor at the North Campus, Brady Boyd, had always had this vision in his heart to start dream centers. And I didn't know this, but I had some similar dreams in my heart. And on a trip, just a couple years into my time on staff, uh, we got to share some of these dreams together. So that was 2010, and with just a few short months later in 2011, we launched a nonprofit called Dream Centers of Colorado Springs. Has anyone heard of Dream Centers here? Okay. Is Dream Centers new to anyone here? Maybe about six, six or seven of you. Okay. So uh, it's a small nonprofit. We are five years old now, and we have three core programs. One is called the Women's Clinic, so we do free, comprehensive women's health care uh, for uninsured and underinsured women throughout the county. The second program, Adopt-A-Block, is like we're in the very beginning stages still, a few years into it, of community development. So we're doing asset-based community development and developing a lot of relationships in the Park Hill neighborhood. And that kind of laid a foundation for us to enter with good relationships when we opened Mary's Home, which is a residential program, long-term, up to five years, that's incredibly holistic and comprehensive, trauma-informed, culturally sensitive, faith-based, living program for moms and their kids who have experienced homelessness. So that's the big picture of Dream Centers. And that's why I get to be here today. So Jeff and Evan invited me to talk about homelessness because this is such a big topic in any city across the United States, right? Everyone has experienced at least seeing somebody who's homeless, and probably most of us actually know people who have been homeless. So we are going to spend three weeks talking about this in depth, and this is a little bit just to kick it off say, what in the world? Like, if we just look at homelessness, the big topic, who are the homeless? Who make up this amazing group of people? Why did they get there? So some of these big picture ideas we'll cover today, and then you'll get a lot more in depth uh, about it in the weeks to come. All right, so that's how we'll start off. We'll kick off with some prayer, and then I'm going to share a lot of stories today. So we get some real tangible ideas of who who the people are that are experiencing homelessness. So Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy, your love and faithfulness. And God, we thank you that you are a just and righteous God. And Lord, that you are putting all things right. And you invite us into your great mission that includes loving and serving people who are experiencing homelessness in this city. So thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for our identity as your family. And God, would you enter into this discussion today 
enter into our hearts, to open our hearts and minds to the message that you have. And God, we pray that we would hear and that, Lord, you would even speak to us individually, everyone in here today, so that we could walk out of here and also respond. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so everyone's heard of the story of the prodigal son. Yeah? This is a great story. It's one of my favorite in the scriptures. And it's a story about a homeless person. So this young man decides he's going to ask his father for the inheritance early, which in essence means between the kids, his father needs to sell property, take out his inheritance, whatever it's invested in, divide the equal part that this son would normally get later on in life, give it to him, and then he goes and squanders it. And he doesn't just squander it, but he spends it in the most shameful ways, right? To the point where he wastes all of it paying for sex. And he comes back home and he is literally homeless and begging for mercy from this father. And so how the father responds at this point it just is absolutely incredible to me. Because in a Middle Eastern culture, with a patriarchal society, and a, a father who is supposed to be walking with pride and not do anything shameful, one of the worst things he can do is pick up his clothes and run to his son. It's a very shameful act. And he did it in public display. For sure, some of the neighbors were watching, and maybe the villagers And for the days and weeks and months ahead, this is a story they probably told that was about how this family, this father shamed his whole family. But he did that. He did the shameful thing in order to do something good, to meet his son and embrace him wholeheartedly and show him grace. Whereas the son, by his clear choices, did something very shameful that only benefited himself but hurt everyone around him. And really, I think that's the story of all of our lives, that we get in touch somehow with the shameful parts of ourselves, our decisions, our behaviors, uh, and that's very painful. That's very painful to even look that in the eye, to experience our own weakness, our own vulnerability. Uh, But we have a Heavenly Father that meets us there, and He's even willing to shame Himself to meet us, to take away our disgrace. And so that's a story that's really popular. We know it. We've heard it a lot, read through scriptures. Um, But I want to share, after that, a few stories about homeless people I know that they aren't homeless by their own shameful choices. They're homeless because of other choices, which the vast majority of the time, this is the case for everyone who's experiencing homelessness. So here's a few friends uh, that I've met over the years, and I'll just go through these stories. So when I finished undergrad in 99, I moved down to Georgia, and there's a little base in the center of the state called Warner Robins, and I started attending church at, at a town about 30 miles north of there called Macon. So if you know the Bible Belt at all, uh, and you're familiar with the South at all, there's, there's certain places that we call the Bible, the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Places like maybe Tulsa or 
Macon is one of these, Macon, Georgia. So it's a very uh, traditional town. Uh, there's a lot of old money. And, and racism is rampant there. So there's also a lot of major issues that I got exposed to for the first time in moving to the South. And, uh, but one of my greatest uh, experiences that I got to have week to week was I'd go up to Macon with some friends and we'd attend First Prez. And walking around just in the neighborhood around First Prez downtown, we ran into this guy named Mac. And we were about the same age, but at the time I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, I would have guessed he was twice my age, if not more. And uh, Mac was one of these just totally lovable guys. Uh, he weighed over 400 pounds. He was a crack addict, uh, an alcoholic at the time. And, uh, but he was always open to talk. And he was funny. And we would bring him into church with us. But he really, he would always bargain. And he didn't want to just come and experience fellowship. He wanted something for it. But he always did it in the most fun and engaging ways. So we made deals with Mac, and he would come and sit through worship services with us, and then we'd go out to lunch together. Uh, but we discovered over time just little bits and pieces of his story that he led us into. Like the fact that when he was born, his mom was an alcoholic and drug addict. And so he was actually born addicted to drugs. Uh, he started using when he was a little kid, uh, along with the crew his mom ran with. And somehow, now, when he was a 23-year-old, he was still alive on the streets, living homeless his whole life. Uh, so that was amazing to me to understand how somebody could live in the cold, in the heat, no shelter, literally their entire life, begging for scraps, anything they could get, and they could still be that full of joy. Mac was a special man. So, this is the typical picture of if we had a stereotype for the homeless person, right? We might think of Mac. Because that's who we most visibly see all the time. It's Mac is chronically homeless. So, this is a person who, no matter how much intervention is done, he will probably remain homeless his whole life. And so, there's been this awesome movement across the country in the last two decades to help people like Mac to have permanent supportive housing where their services on site, we can restore their dignity of life. We realize they've been handed a real bad deck of cards and so we want to provide them some of the services that they really need. Then there's Randy. <clears throat> now, Randy, I could relate to in, even in more ways than Mac because of his military background, but I took a group of cadets overseas to Berlin for an outreach a few years ago. And we went to this place called Alexanderplatz. And has anyone been to Berlin in that area, that square? Okay. So you guys, you would remember it um, vividly. I mean, all the squares in Berlin, these are beautiful places. Uh, a lot of history in this city. And while we were there, we were reaching out to people. There was a, quite a large group of addicts that had hung out in this place. And a lot of them were addicts and now homeless because of drug addictions, uh, because of prescription medicines. So some of their stories were backgrounds in having car wrecks or other types of massive injuries where then they needed to get on prescription drugs and became addicted. But as we're getting to meet all these people and serve sandwiches and serving juice, uh, I heard this southern accent. 
And so because I had lived in Georgia, I can recognize a Georgian accent anywhere. So I knew this guy was from Georgia. So finished up my conversation, ran over there, introduced myself, and, and began this conversation with Randy. And what I discovered was that Randy was a helicopter pilot. And he had served three tours overseas, a couple of them in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. And he got some really sad news one day, that his wife was diagnosed with cancer and that she probably wouldn't live long. So as soon as he could, uh, the emergency flew him back home so he could be with his family. And on the way, not only did his wife pass away, but his two daughters were in a car accident and died. So here is this man who's given his life for his family and his country, and he has the worst possible news that anyone could hand him. So Randy, in his grief, in his pain, in his sorrow and suffering, goes back to his base he's stationed at during this deployment and begins to uh, immediately show signs of deep depression, gets checked into one of the main hospitals in Germany where any soldiers go while they're deployed overseas in this area of the world, uh, gets on some antidepressants, and soon he finds himself, like all these others in Alexander Plotz, addicted to prescription meds. But the pain was too much for him to really deal with at the time. So when the military dismissed him, medically disqualified him from further service, he just stayed. He remained homeless, and Berlin became his home. Okay, Katie, here's somebody who's local, but she's also from Georgia originally. Bounced around from foster home to foster home, abused first by her biological family and then through several other families who fostered her. Uh, But somehow wound her way through transportation and different systems connecting along the way and landed in Colorado Springs. Now, she is a fighter. And she is a wonderful storyteller. She could sit there and make you laugh all day. And and it's just a beautiful person. She's a beautiful soul. And so when she was experiencing new life here, it was like, yes, this is maybe a fresh start for me. Maybe I can get, you know, I'm not going to be around abuse any longer. But pretty quickly here, uh, when you are living on the streets, uh, you're more vulnerable And a lot of guys that might be more violent or have uh, not the best intentions, when they want to prey on somebody who's vulnerable, it's a lot easier to find somebody who's living homeless on the streets. And she found herself in that situation. So uh, this really could have devastated any of us, but she continued to fight and got into a program in town that helped her, a transitional housing program. And today... For the first time in her life, she's now living on her own, working sustainably, taking care of her kids on her own. And I would guess within a couple years, she's going to be off state and federal support and be one of these amazing stories of somebody who's escaped this generational poverty and abuse and cycle that happens to so many people. So Jer is the next one. And Jared, this is a even more personal. This is probably the most personal story of all. So uh, I became friends with Jared through a small group group at New Life. 
and this was shortly after I moved here in 2006. Uh, and he was experiencing at the time, for the first time in his life, in his late 20s, uh, voices in his head. So he lived totally normal life. He was actually a really, really, really good worker. He had a great work ethic, and people at work were, ad- admired him uh, for what he could accomplish as a salesman. Uh, he also had a lot of other athletic accomplishments that I think all of us would be amazed with. Um, he was funny. He was gregarious. He was engaging. He was, just a, he was a friend to all of us in this small group. So when he started expressing like, hey, this is, these are the kind of thoughts that I'm hearing and these are the things that I'm experiencing, uh, it's scaring me. And he's like one of these gentle souls that wouldn't hurt anyone, but he continued to hear these very violent things that were coming into his mind. So uh, Jer is, because he's also such a gentle soul, felt somehow that he needed to confess these things to his girlfriend right away, which not the best idea at the moment, but he just opened his heart shared all the thoughts he had been having, and she quietly and graciously moved to the other room, dialed 911, and soon Jer found himself in the psychiatric ward at the time, which was in, in town on Pikes Peak Avenue in the old St. Francis Hospital. So after about a three-month stay and heavy, heavy medication to the point where he didn't recognize me during those months, uh, he got out and started a very slow journey of recovery. So he has a pretty severe diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. And through this time, the relationships he had formed earlier in the small group were a godsend to him. And he was a godsend to us to really help us understand for the first time what somebody is going through when they experience this sickness. So we continue to work with him, love him. He went to his doctors faithfully. And over the next three years, miraculously, even under his doctor's care, he was able to reduce his medication to nothing. And then for two more years, in a very stable life, working full-time, serving, doing great things, he lived without medication. But then the voices returned. And he started to go through the cycle again, And today we can find Jer. I can show you where he lives, not too far from downtown, in his truck. He won't talk to me. He won't talk to anyone in the small group. Um, And it's like he's a a whole different person. So it's heartbreaking when you see something like this happen to one of your good friends. Okay, so in the interest of time, well, well, we'll do this one quickly. So Trudy... Trudy is also a somewhat personal story, but one person removed. So a good friend of mine, Bree, that I went to undergrad with in the military, she was also deployed. And while she was away, the housing crisis hit. And so a mutual friend of ours went through a tough time because she was actually working in the civilian sector in the housing market. So when she lost her job, not only did she lose it temporarily, but she tried and tried and tried over the next year. The whole time Bree was gone on deployment, worked through all of her savings, and still was without work, and found herself homeless about the time Bree was coming back home from deployment. 
So what did Bree do? Invite her into her home, took care of her, provided what she needed for food, for clothing, for transportation, for getting what she needed. And today, Trudy, you would never know it, right? You would never know it unless you were in her inner circle that she was homeless for quite a long time. But she was just as educated as any of us, maybe more so. And yet she was what we would call, she was among the hidden homeless in the United States. So here's just a few snapshots of real people that make up some, some of the face of homelessness in our communities. And there are so many more stories we could share. But I want to give a real face to this because sometimes all we see or think of is the person on the corner panhandling. And if that's all we see or think of, that's okay. But we even need to think of them in certain ways because we probably bring, I know I do, our stereotypes, our assumptions, our thoughts about what their stories may be. But when we actually hear stories about people who have experienced homelessness, I think it gives us a context for um, entering in with a place of compassion and I think a place where maybe the prodigal son's father would want us to enter in. Okay, so those are faces. Let's just hold those in our mind, in our heart for a moment, and then we'll talk about this. Million Dollar, Million Dollar Murray. Has anyone read this article? It showed up in the New Yorker. It's also in a, a book called What the Dog Saw. Does anyone? Okay. So this is a great one. If you go but you can search for it online and just download the PDF for free. But a guy named Malcolm Gladwell did this story and he does a lot of brilliant research. And he tracked some people doing some groundbreaking research who were un- trying to understand homelessness uh, in the first kind of six years of, of uh, 2000 through 2005. Uh, and so then Malcolm published this article in 2006. And what it did was, it's a little bit of a case study. He traced this guy named Murray from Reno, Nevada, for a few years. And through this process, was able to do a case study on a lot of his other homeless buddies and friends throughout the city. And what he found is that um, we had a lot of assumptions about who makes up the homeless and where the costs are and what it takes to care for people. And a lot of them were wrong. And so with Murray, he was one of these guys that was, went through probably a dozen programs in his life, but never could stop drinking. He would always return. And yet the best that he ever did in his life, the most sustainably he lived, the longest he held a job, the best he was able to communicate with people, was during a time when he got into a fully supportive program. Today, we would call this permanent supportive housing. And it's a project that you'll hear about, I think, in the next few weeks from Stu Davis, who's on staff with Springs Rescue Mission. And he'll bring to us some real life stories about permanent supportive housing that's coming to this community. So anyway, Murray, he knew everyone, all the staff at every emergency room and every hospital. He knew most of the police officers in town. He knew a lot of the medical personnel. And this is because over and over and over again, they would have to pick Murray up in his drunken state. Oftentimes, he had drank so much, he had fallen down and given himself another concussion or another hematoma or another broken arm. 
they would rush him to the hospital, bandage him up, fix his wounds, detox him, and within a few weeks, he was out of another program and back on the streets. So what they actually found in this study, which was so phenomenal and interesting to me, is that they went wider than this and they said, okay, if this is, this is the typical person that we see or that we hear of, it's homeless, how, how are they related to everyone else? Is this like a bell curve? Is it, um, what are the kinds of people who are homeless and how many are there? So Malcolm uh, started following the research uh, of a grad school student at the time who's actually living in shelters to discover this through different points of time in the year. And what he found is over time, he might see Murray over and over and over again, a very small group of people that were like Murray, but everyone else was unfamiliar to him. He'd come back the second, the third, the fourth time, and it would be a, almost a completely new group of people in the local shelter. So this was really eye-opening for him because he thought, well, I just thought you were either homeless or you're not. And what he found is that they're the largest group by far of homeless people in the U.S., 80% or more, are homeless for one or two days a year. They might literally have one or two days in the shelter a year. Then there's another 10% that have this kind of intermittent homelessness experience where they might become unstable because they have some generational poverty in their past or whatever it may be. They might be homeless for a few weeks at a time and then they find another job and they're back on their feet. And then six months later, they find themselves homeless again for a few weeks and then they get another job and then they find themselves back on their feet. But it's only the last 10% of people that are homeless, experiencing homelessness in our country, that are what we would say are the chronically homeless with severe mental health or severe addictions in their lives. So if you look at the cost then of homelessness, it's not like a bell curve or some other kind of curve, it's more like a hockey stick. So if you look across the continuum of care of all those 80% and then the next 10% of homelessness, it's actually very little cost on our systems, to taxpayers, to anyone in a community. But then this hockey stick that's lying on its side suddenly goes exponential at the end with this particular group of people experiencing homelessness called the chronically homeless. So because of all those emergency room visits, because of all the extra help and support that the city needs. So this is why Springs Rescue Mission is putting amazing amount of energy and time and money and funding and why New Life and so many other churches in town are getting behind their permanent supportive housing project. Because one, it's what I think the prodigal son's father would do. It's what our Heavenly Father would do. It gives people grace. You find a permanent place for people to live and have supportive services. But even on a practical or economic level, people know this is the only right thing to do because you're saving the city literally millions of dollars every decade for every person that they put in permanent supportive housing and get off of the street who's chronically homeless. Okay, so I hope that gives just an overview of kind of the face of homelessness. If you look in any city across the United States, those are some of the things that you'll discover. All right, is there a way to turn down some of the lights just for a minute? We'll see if we can show you some of these. 
I know some of you guys are more left-brained and you want a few stats, so I'll throw some up here, but we won't stay too long on these. Um, you can find all this information pretty easily searching online. But this is a really hopeful message right now because what this is saying is that from 2007 to 2014, across every one of these categories, overall number of homeless individuals, unsheltered people and families, chronically homeless individuals, veterans, unaccompanied children and youth, and chronically homeless people and families, we are finding less and less, which means more and more, are in shelters or permanent supportive programs or transitional housing programs or other kinds of things that are actually reducing the number of people who are homeless. This is amazing. A lot of this is because of government work. Some of it is because of the work of the church. Hopefully the work of the church increases drastically and we'll see that even more. I think our community locally does a fantastic job of the church stepping up and getting into the places where people are experiencing homelessness. Okay, so here's just overall some of the populations and subpopulations. I don't know if that um, helps answer any questions or... These are national. Okay, so major homeless subpopulations in 2014. So you're going to see the greatest here are the non-chronic individuals and non-chronic people and families. So that's contributing pretty similar. Now, they aren't going to follow this other guy's study I shared with the 80%, 10%, 10%. But you can see that it's actually, it is close to 80% who are non-chronically homeless. Okay. Now, this is really interesting. So, so 18.3 people in every 10,000 people. That's the national rate of homelessness. Colorado, if we look at our state rate, it's 19. So it's very similar. It's about 19 people that are homeless here for every 10,000 people in the state of Colorado. Okay. So depending on a lot of different studies you're on, there's different ranges for these. And I think I wanted to be particularly sensitive to this top one because I don't think it's, I think people, there's a lot of variability in these studies. But 16 to 20% of people with homelessness are considered mentally ill. 19% are employed. Isn't that amazing? 59% of previously homeless people reported staying in their vehicle. So they're out of homelessness now, but they had that intermittent or that short time when they're homeless, and that's where they stayed. 25% makeshift housing. So, for example, we partner with the Korean Baptist Church. Spring Creek goes right behind their undeveloped land, and I'm getting to know a lot of the homeless people that are living in that creek bed. And then families with children comprise about 23% of people experiencing homelessness. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Okay, of homeless single mother families, 93% of the mothers have been abused. And 92% have experienced severe abuse. These are some of the most striking statistics to me. 53% don't have a high school diploma, so there's a lot of generational poverty going on that 
creates homelessness. By 12, 83% of homeless children have been exposed to violence. These families have more physical and mental health problems, delayed development, and educational barriers than anyone else. And most men who are homeless have experienced abuse as well. Okay. So what is this? <laughs> Does this seem like a pretty grim picture? I mean, it's sad, right? It, it breaks our heart as followers of Christ who want to enter into the points of pain in our cities. These are some of the things that are very painful. And we see that the pictures that are painted of homeless are probably not that accurate. And there are stories, because of these statistics, and generational poverty and abuse that happen behind the scenes that really are the main contributors to homelessness. Um, And because 80% are not chronically homeless, of the whole homeless populations across all of our country, that means that the vast majority of people that are homeless, we will never even see, hear, know their name. They're the hidden homeless. So that's because of people like Bree that are hosting Trudy in their homes, that people like that are actually able to not become chronically homeless, to not remain on the street where they're vulnerable and at high risk. So a few stories, and then I'd like to, now I'd like to just take questions, Q&A, because I think this is, um, after you hear something like this, and we're about to head into a few more weeks of understanding homelessness even in more depth, it's good to just get the questions out there, and then I'd love to talk and respond if I can. If not, we'll, I'll take the questions back to our speakers the next few weeks, and we'll try to go in-depth and get as accurate as possible with your questions so that we can walk out of here knowing how to respond in prayer and maybe even some very clear actions and how we can engage in some of these issues in our community. So thoughts or questions that you guys have right now? I wish I did. That's such a great question. So he asked if I have any statistics on those who are panhandling but not homeless. So they're doing this. They may be living somewhere fine in a home but coming out panhandling. And, and I think you, you mentioned marijuana as well. This, I think they're, what I've heard from a lot of people informally, and we haven't seen this research yet for the state, but you talk to counseling programs, you talk to social service providers, you talk to the hospital staff, you talk to local police and the, hot, the homeless outreach team. They confirm that. that there's a lot of new population that's moved in since um, the sale of marijuana has become legalized in Colorado. It's attracted a lot of people. It's increased the panhandling. So we know that it, it's contributing to, the, to that issue, but we just, I don't have any numbers for you there. I think uh, the best response is, um, that, that would, I, I would say the panhandler, like what this gentleman in the back asked about, that's the exception. The majority of panhandlers probably still are homeless. So um, I think the assumption would be good uh, to know that a lot of these sad statistics I shared uh, are part of their background story. 
And even if, and of course, they aren't going to want to talk about that with anyone. Those are some of the most shameful things that we can talk about. And so I wouldn't try to go deep. I wouldn't try to know their story uh, unless you're in it for the long haul. But I would give them the dignity and respect they deserve by looking them in the eye, talking to them, ask their name, encourage them, give them a blessing, and don't give them money. Because most people who are panhandling on the street are panhandling so that they can uh, have resources to feed an addiction. And that's, that's just reality. But a lot of people will look at them with disdain or look the other way or not acknowledge them. And I think one of the best things we can do is pretty simple. It's acknowledge somebody, look them in the eye, and um, encourage them. That's right. That's great. It's a great question. So she asked, like the program that Springs Rescue Mission is building on right now, their permanent supportive housing program, I think they're adding 65 units to what they have. Um, Are there other more comprehensive elements to that program that help people exit homelessness? Yes. So they have a great catering program, among others, and some of the people that go through their addiction recovery program and their permanent supportive housing program will go through their culinary or other programs that they have, and find sustainable jobs. A lot of them, because a lot of chronically homeless people, it's hard to get over those addictions or mental health illnesses, they'll remain, and they could remain forever in that permanent supportive housing. Um, so the next group, and this is where Dream Centers really comes in, and where we saw a gap in care in the city, is family homelessness. Um, Grecio Housing is affordable, and Partners in Housing are doing transitional housing, and they're addressing some of that. But we saw a huge gap in terms of a faith-based program that was long-term, comprehensive. So Mary's Home is a five-year program. And some of the things you're describing, um, from healthcare to professional trauma-informed counseling, experiential healing through trauma-informed activities, um, a community that's life-giving, education, skills training, development in EQ, skills, development in parenting, all and more. I mean, that's just scratching the surface of what we do at Mary's Home. So those are the kind of things that get into place for that group of people that are not necessarily the the chronically homeless, but they are so vulnerable and high risk for becoming chronically homeless the longer they stay on the street because they're more susceptible to abuse. It's just, just the street, being on the street alone without anyone abusing you necessarily is abusive because it is so difficult. It's so difficult to even get a good night of sleep let alone all the other things that you would need to accomplish to get off the street. So I think that's a very pointed question. It, you know, we could spend months talking about the services and different strategies and philosophies of how to help come alongside people and empower them to uh, fulfill their dreams. But those are some of the little things that we're doing with Dream Centers and that Springs Rescue Mission is doing and a lot of other great organizations in town. Absolutely. So, um, and this is why some of the food programs, you know, we we often have big hearts to start food programs and we want to feed the homeless. And more often than not, 
Um, that's more about making ourselves feel better. Um, I'll just be real blunt about that. Um, Marion Soup Kitchen does a fantastic job day-to-day, and actually over 70% of the, the meals they serve are to the working poor who are not even homeless, and about 25% are to people who are experiencing homelessness. So if you combine the soup kitchen, Springs Rescue Missions meals, uh, and some of the other more permanent um, kind of food outreach ministries in town that a few churches do, um, those have become very foundational for this group of people in the community because they can rely on it. It's consistent. They know they can schedule other medical appointments or job applications or interviews or other things that they have to be doing. They can schedule their life around these foundational food programs in the community. So once we initiate temporary food programs into the middle of that kind of ecosystem of care, it disrupts it often and it throws people off of a routine that they really need. And they need that stability so much to get... um, potentially out of homelessness. So, so that's really good to think about the food programs that are out there before we engage in maybe creating one. Absolutely. So, so here's, here's what I often tell people when they ask about this is... Um, if, if it's going to be temporary and it's not committed and long-term and stable, I wouldn't waste our time. However, if, it's, if the main point is relational and providing somebody dignity, then that's encouraging. You can, I, I encourage that. Because somebody might be, uh, you might be able to engage people here and there with giving a meal or sitting down for lunch with somebody or taking them shopping at the grocery store. If people are ha- have the time and we're not throwing them off of their schedule, and it's a time when we can really care about them, like we talked about earlier, look them in the eye, share a good conversation, not try to dig a real dark story out of their past, but just love and encourage somebody. Um, absolutely. Do that all day. That's great. I think uh, you're highlighting. So, so she said, "How do we, um, how do we know what all the resources and services are out there to offer, and how do we connect people with those?" And and I think you also highlighted that our transportation systems are inadequate, and they are. And I think transportation and affordable housing, lack of those, are the main two contributors to homelessness. Um, so. Uh, I think the continuum of care, getting connected with them locally, uh, is a great source of information. Amy Cox, the Director of Community Initiatives for the city, is another great. So you can go to uh, the city government uh, website. Uh, I think another one is just dial 211 or get their publication. So if you dial the number 211, it it describes services uh, throughout the community, all of those kind of services and more. 
And I think another area is just get familiar with, with the population. So if we're at a distance, it's always hard. It's always hard to learn and get connected to those services. But if you started volunteering with Mary's Home or you started volunteering with Springs Rescue Mission and you start kind of being in that community and you get to be friends with Jackie or Stu or whoever at the, at the mission and, and you start having these conversations, I think um, it, it is really helpful to have context and not just necessarily information. Because this is also what I found is that when we just have like a list of information and we don't understand the context of the issues in the city, um, sometimes we can actually direct people to resources that aren't going to be helpful for them. Because there are, there are a significant amount of resources in town, and we may think this sounds good for a particular person, but it really doesn't end up being the thing that they need at that time. So... Um, yeah, I think just plugging in and, and starting to, to get involved in, in those issues in the city is really helpful. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Will I hear you? I feel the same. I think we all do. We have at some point or another that we feel stuck and we don't know how to respond necessarily. And so I think that um, that example uh, with a young mom and two kids that's also panhandling, this is a great example of how we're entering a world that we don't necessarily understand unless you've grown up in generational poverty. And maybe some of us in here have. But Ruby Payne's done some groundbreaking work in describing the values and the hidden rules, the language, all of the kind of things that go along with a whole group, a whole culture called poverty or generational poverty, a whole group of people that are in the middle class, and then another group of people that are in wealth. And it's hidden and it's unspoken and untaught. It's informally taught through experience. All of these rules. And so if you grew up in a middle-class family or in wealth, we don't, we, it's going to be really hard to engage that person who may be affected by generational poverty. And that's why I recommend partnering with some local organizations. So Urban Peak, for example, let's say that's a young mom and she's got young kids, maybe even she's a teen mom. 
Urban Peak does outreach. They're one of the few organizations in town. They're the only homeless shelter for youth in town. So we start partnering and engaging at that level and become a volunteer outreach person. That's the kind of person they'll provide you with the training and the skills and the understanding to know how to communicate, how to talk, how to ask the right question, even where to begin. Because without that kind of training, we feel really stuck, and I would too. Absolutely. And I think you can do the both ends. So what I hear you saying is you do feel stuck still driving up to an intersection. You see somebody. I would say you actually don't. Shame and guilt never got us anywhere. Don't feel shameful for not giving money. That's not your responsibility. And actually, literally, people have done research on this. The vast majority of the time you're feeding an addiction. So, so just release right now yourself from any obligation to hand out cash. It's not going to be helpful. And what actually is, it's a beautiful thing, and I've learned to practice it. I know my wife up there, Amber, and I do this, is we do look people. You can roll down your window, even if it's two seconds, hi, say hi. We walk down the street in the south and say hi to people. We, we do drive by. It's not as common in Colorado Springs, but in some places around the country, it's normal to say hi and greet each other. You can totally greet the person and drive on by. Um, and that's a beautiful thing to do. But if you want to actually really help them in depth and know, it's so tough. You're dealing with some real systemic, deep-seated issues that I would not re- recommend going into it blindly and just trying to, out of the goodness of your heart, engage the person and, and, and try to make things better. It usually doesn't work out well that way. What are the mental health needs uh, for these, this population and what are the services that are out there that are actually trying to address the Yeah. It's a great question. This will be the final one. And then I'm going to stay down here afterwards to talk to anyone. And we'll do some follow-up with notes. But um, these are great questions. You asked about mental health. What are those resources out there? And how do we connect people? So one of the best things we can do is right away connect them with the resource advocacy program. So this is state-funded. Springs Rescue Mission runs it. So they have the responsibility from the state. It's one of their four core, core programs. They run... Uh, and they'll do an initial assessment. So Sarah will sit down with the client, find out what their needs are, see if there's any past diagnoses, what their history is, and then they'll try to connect them to many of the resources in town, whether it's Aspen Point or somewhere else. Maybe it's uh, they need medical work first. And so, you know, who knows what it could be. It could be a whole myriad of things that they may need, but the first stop is to work with a professional that can actually do the assessment and the intake. So that's the easiest, shortest answer is get them connected. You can find that, the Resource Advocacy Program office number on Springs Rescue Mission's website. Um, And we'd be glad to. So here's just a blanket um, kind of offer. I've lived in this world for a while now, and I'm like barely scratching the surface on probably the understanding that 
uh, a lot of people have in this area of working with people who are homeless. And so, but I may be able to point you in the right direction or help answer some of your questions. So always feel free to email. I'm on the New Life website and the Dream Centers website. If you just go to dreamcenters.com, you'll find us. And uh, yeah, this is, this is a big topic and it's a lot more complicated sometimes than, than it looks at the surface. Um, but, but those are the issues if we're talking about like mental health and needs and panhandling. But here's, here's the, the best thing to keep in mind and I think what's important for us to keep front and center is that those issues are issues but people are people. And we're dealing with people primarily. And as people who are Christ-centered and following after God and wanting to participate in his mission, that we can remember the issues can be secondary. And we can find ways to partner with organizations and help people out and deal with those issues. But remember, these we don't talk about homeless like um, this big label on them, like they're some kind of so different kind of issue that, they're, that we're, we're totally unrelated. They're people like you and me. This is people that uh, we can engage with. Uh, and, and I think that most importantly, we can pray that God enters their lives. And a lot of them, when we do that and we begin to pray for people, God moves our hearts and then we realize they're part of our own healing and our own discovery of our weakness and our own discovery of our vulnerability. And so that's one of the most beautiful gifts that somebody that's experiencing homelessness can offer to us is getting in touch with our own vulnerability that most of the time, honestly, if you're middle class or wealth, we just avoid. We just avoid our own issues. So that's it. Let's close in prayer and then I'll be up here for questions. Lord, thanks for this time together with people who are following you into your mission in this city. God, we thank you for their dedication and faithfulness to come today and learn more about your people in this city who are made in your image. And God, we give you glory and thank you for the good things that you're doing through people in this city. And God, help us. Help us to have humble and gracious hearts as we enter this conversation for the next month. God, we pray that uh, you would move by the power of your spirit on us so that we would respond, God. Would you help us? Would you put certain people on our mind? Uh, God, would you move some of us to begin serving with Urban Peak and Springs Rescue Mission? God, with Partners in Housing or Grecio, with Dream Centers. God, would you speak to us about... uh, even somebody that we may know. Somebody, an extended family member, a friend, a friend's student in one of the local schools. And God, we pray that we would be able to be salt and light in this community as we enter their stories. So thank you again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.